one of my uh, favorite verses in Psalm 119 is where the psalmist says, I shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. This is a, a tough passage. I remember C.J. Mahaney reading him years ago saying every time he read Genesis 3, the fall, he was moved to tears. I wonder, when was the last time you wept over sin? When was the last time you wept over personal sin? Um, this is a heavy passage. You know, I, you talk about Exodus. There's so many famous passages that come to mind. The burning bush in chapter 3. Uh, you know, the, the, the plagues that really span five, six chapters. Um, parting of the Red Sea, giving of the law. And I think this one has gone down in infamy. This is uh, the golden calf story. This is where we're going to be for our time together this morning. Again, I pray that the Lord open our eyes to behold wonderful things in his word. The title of my sermon is Beware Your Idols, the Big Idea. We need an intervention to rescue us from the wrath of God. Who's ever been a part of an intervention? You don't have to raise your hand. It's essentially what church discipline is. It's God's people intervening. An intervention typically contains four elements. A person or people. Number one. Number two, a problem. And one and two go together, right? The, the person or the people, the group, have a, a serious problem. Number three, there's an intervening people or an intervening person. And number four, there's a proposed solution. Again, the person and the problem go together. One and two go together. The problem usually involves a besetting sin or some gross addiction, the intervening people or the person are there typically because of their love for the person with the problem. And the solution is the agreed-upon remedy for the person in their problem. Now, in many situations, uh, some might argue, yeah, that the best solution is, is rehab or some program. However, as Christians, we know that the ultimate... Everybody say ultimate. That's good. Okay, you're with me. The ultimate solution to the ultimate problem underlying all of our other problems is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem is sin. Is true? The problem is sin, and the solution is Jesus. We have to use the language of the Bible. I fear that many churches have gotten away from the Bible, and they begin to use the language of the world to diagnose our problem, which can be confusing. And even they appeal to different solutions other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's some examples. I've heard some say, mankind's greatest problem is their failure to reach their greatest potential. Who's heard that? I have. Even in the church. Or, mankind's greatest problem is their inability to find happiness. And they would make happiness, personal happiness, our greatest solution. Or, Mankind's greatest problem is their inability to achieve self-actualization. Now, if we highlight these as the greatest problems, then we're going to miss what? We're going to miss the solution. Our ultimate solution is not self-actualization or personal happiness, but a Savior, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only He can change our status. Only He can change our hearts. Only He can change our eternal trajectory. Now, in Exodus 32, believe it or not, we find one of the earliest examples of an intervention in the Bible. 
What can we learn from Exodus 32? Let me give you context here, because I I highlighted this. I, I kind of ended last week by posing the question, why is Exodus, the second half of Exodus 31, where it is? This focus on the Sabbath. Okay, so I divided Exodus 31 into two halves last week. If you weren't here, I'll bring you up to speed. In Exodus 31, 1 to 11, we have the call to serve. The Lord gives his spirit to his people so that they can serve one another for their good and God's glory. The second half was Exodus 31, 12 to 18, and it focused on the Sabbath, namely the call to rest, the call to remember, the call to revere the Lord. The Sabbath, this is pretty cool, the Sabbath was a day divinely programmed into the weekly calendar of God's people to remind them of who God was and to call them to worship Him as both the Creator and the Savior. So we have the call to serve, the call to worship, and then 32, we have Israel falling into this gross idolatry, worshiping a golden calf, attributing their rescue to a lifeless metal image. What in the world? So the the question I ended on last week, and I want to say it again just for the sake of context, why this call to worship between the call to serve and Israel's fall into idolatry? Because, I say because, you're still half of you with me, because the motivation for God's people to serve one another is what? Remembering who God is and what he's done. And what will prevent us from falling into idolatry? Remembering who God is and what he's done. That was at the heart of the Sabbath. It was a day of worship, a day to rest in the Lord, a day to remember together with God's people who God is and what he's done. A day to revere the Lord. And when we do that, we're going to want to serve each other in response to who God is and what He's done. And when we are focused on worshiping the Lord, it is going to prevent a fall into idolatry. Does that make sense? Because when you're focused on the Lord, you're not focused on other things, other substitutes. Now, if you've taken a class on hermeneutics, Bible interpretation, Bible study, you're taught to bring certain questions to any text in the Bible, right? Here are some questions that I think are really helpful. Any passage, Old Testament, New Testament, when you're looking at God's Word, ask yourself, what does this passage teach me or teach us about God? It's a great question to ask. Number two, you could ask, what does this passage teach us about mankind? And there's a subset of questions related to question two. What are they? What does the Bible teach us about sin? and the consequences of sin. And number three, and I always answer this question, especially when the Old Testament, how does this passage point to Jesus in the gospel? And guess what? We're going to look at all these questions today. We'll be applying those questions to Exodus 32. I mentioned this last week. Over the years, theologians have aptly described Exodus 32 as the second fall. What's the first fall? Mankind's fall into sin. Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve, they disobey God. God says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they do that. And it came with horrible consequences. We all now have a sin nature. All of us have been born outside of the the garden. Exodus 32 is the second fall. And I want to look quickly at the similarities between the first fall and the second fall. I think this will be helpful. First, in both instances, so Genesis 3 and Exodus 32, 
God creates or calls a people to himself. First, Adam and Eve, and then Israel. Second, oh, in both instances, if you look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and if you look at Exodus 1 to 32, what do we see? God gives his peoples his word. What does he tell Adam and Eve? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. What else? Serve, protect, guard the garden. What else? Don't eat. Here's the negative command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you do, you will surely what? You're going to die. So God gives Adam and Eve the gift of his word. Who else does he give this gift to? Israel. He gives them the what? The Ten Commandments. The first half shows them how to live in right relationship with the Lord, the vertical. The second half, how to live in right relationship with one another. Fourth, when you realize who God is and what he's done for his people, it reveals the gravity of the fall. You're going to see, wow, this is, this is really heavy. Fourth, in both instances, God visibly dwells with his people. He walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. If you look at Exodus, he goes before Israel in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He's visibly present with his people. And that's not all. He, he provides for their physical needs. I mean, he gives Adam and Eve this lush garden full of fruit. They can eat it. They have all their needs taken care of. Israel grumbles, they complains. God gives them water. He gives them manna from heaven. He gives them quail, meat to eat. That rhymed. <laughs> and yet, in both instances, mankind rejects the Lord in favor of something else. Adam and Eve and Israel spurn God's goodness, His generosity, His provision and his plan for them and this brings us to mankind's greatest problem what does exodus 32 teach us about mankind point number one i'm sorry you don't have this in your handout we're on vacation all week and so uh, i got you the title and i think the big idea and if you want to take notes i'll repeat a couple of times but point number one if you're taking notes we are look around idolaters by nature i read Calvin, John Calvin, his institutes when I was in seminary, and not all of it, it's two volumes, it's pretty heavy. But I remember this quote that I came across, and I thought, wow, that's, that's really good. He says, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. <laughs> the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. What are we good at producing, friends? Idols. What's an idol? Anything you put before the Lord. Now, we must remember, I think this is worth saying, Adam and Eve were not sinners by nature, meaning they weren't born with a sin nature, right? But what happened? They sinned. And when they did sin, their nature was corrupted. And that corrupted, sinful nature has been passed on to who? We've inherited it, right? We are inheritors of that nature. We are born with hearts that produce what? Idols. Idols. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Where do we see this in our passage? Namely, where do we see idolatry at work? Now, it's subtle. It's very subtle, but if you go, now, I don't know if you caught this. You're thinking, well, obviously, it's, they realize, hey, you know what? Moses has been gone for a while. What gives? They're panicking. 
But what did they say? Did you catch it when Paul read it? It's in verse 1. Because if I, if, I said, if I asked you the question, you know, where does idolatry begin in Exodus 32? I think most of it's with the golden calf. I mean, hey, you know, get, get earrings from your wife's kids, and we're going to put them together, and we're going to make something to worship. But that, that's not where it begins. It's in verse 1. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Wait, 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 wait. Who? Who brought them out of Egypt? It wasn't Moses. It was the Lord. They're already looking to man rather than who? That's where it starts. Again, it's not... Can we all agree that we're sinners? Okay. All of us are sinners. All of us are prone to breaking God's law. But you know what else we are? We're idolaters. We are idolaters, prone to worship other things and other people instead of the one true God. Oh, man. You should be moved by this text. You should grieve over what happens in Exodus 32. In one fell swoop, Israel breaks commandments 1 and 2. It's incredible. And not in a good way, by the way. Exodus 23 and 4, just to remind you what the first two commandments are. You shall have no other gods before me. Number one. That's commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Number two, this is verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And then we get to Exodus 32 verse 8. What do we see happening? They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Oh, Note the progress in our passage. Verse 1, when the people saw, and I'm going to explain this. This is how sin works. James does a good job of explaining this as well. Because of time, we're not going to go to James. We're going to focus on Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And then you go to verse 8 again. They've made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Wow, that happened really fast! What just happened? Are you kidding me? Here's what happened. Israel, now be on, be on guard, friends, because this can happen to you too. Israel fails to look to the Lord in the midst of their difficult circumstances. Where's Moses? Where's our leader? We don't know. Instead of looking to the Lord, what do they do? They look to a man-made solution rather than the Lord. You've ever done that, right? We always look to the Lord first, don't we? And I found this interesting as I read this passage again and again. You know, no one speaks up. No one intervenes. No one says, you know what? This is a bad idea, guys. Let's not do this. Why? Because in that moment, who do they fear more? They fear man. Better not go against the masses. Better not go against the majority. They don't fear the Lord. They fear man. They fail to look to the Lord, and they fail to fear the Lord. That is where sin begins. Instead, they look to a man-made solution for rescue and peace. How pathetic. But wait. <laughs> 
Again, this is not just a failure to worship. Because they do worship. They are worshiping. Everybody's a worshiper, by the way. But instead of worshiping the one true God, they worship their own creation. They worship the creation rather than the Creator. And this is meant to shock and awe. This is meant to shock and awe. Man, Israel's idolatry seems so asinine, so foolish, so ridiculous. It's easy for us to look on Israel with incredulity, even spite for their wickedness so close to their rescue. How dare they do this? They've just been rescued. They've been given the gift of God's word. Who do they think they are? It's like the parent who disciplines their child. And and again, if you discipline well, you don't just spank them. You say, listen, here's what you did. Here's why it's wrong. Here's why there are consequences. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting others. You know, it's like a shining moment for the parent. They've done everything right in this moment. They have explained everything. They've even brought the child to the gospel. Praise God. But then they walk away, and as soon as they look back, what's that child doing? The exact same thing! Again! We just had an, And what does the parent do? What is happening right now? They look on in amazement. <laughs> but we do the same thing, don't we, church? We do the same thing. Every time we sin, every time we sin, we are looking to something else or someone else to give us what only God can give us. How foolish. We must see ourselves in Exodus 32. We must. I think we're more like Israel than we realize. Now, I love this. What is the Lord's diagnosis of Israel's problem? Verse 9, Exodus 32, 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. What does that mean? A stiff-necked people. Stubborn? It means arrogant, prideful. Who's ever injured their neck and you had to have one of those collars? I'm sorry if that was you. Hey, look, Dad, I can't. You know, you're restricted. You can't bow the head. You can't bow the head. You're stiff-necked. It's more than that. A stick-necked person, a stick, well, stiff-necked, a hoobity-hoobity, a stiff-necked person is any person Listen, who is overly impressed with their own self-importance and they're unwilling to listen to others. They're prideful. They're arrogant. They know everything. The irony is that Israel was only stiff-necked in regards to the one true God. They weren't stiff-necked with regard to their idols because they worshiped them just fine. Now notice Moses' diagnosis. It lines up with the Lord's. This is really cool, by the way. Listen to what Moses says. This is verse 11. So two verses later. So Moses, I'm sorry, this is verse 31. Several verses later. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. What? That's, That's weird English. That sounds awkward. This people has sinned a great sin. Hata! That's the Hebrew verb. It means to miss the mark. It means to miss the purpose, to miss the goal. But he says they've missed the mark in a big way. They've sinned in a big way. Moses is stressing the magnitude of their sin. They didn't just sin. They sinned in a rather big way. They've rejected their creator for the creation. They've rejected their living Savior for a lifeless substance. How foolish. This is heartbreaking. 
you know what Moses doesn't do? He doesn't make excuses for Israel. He is for who? Who is Moses for? He's for the Lord. His diagnosis is in agreement with the Lord. Now, what does our idolatry deserve? This brings us to point number two. Our idolatry deserves what? God's punishment. I hope you agree with that. Our sin, our idolatry deserves God's punishment. Now listen, Exodus 32, verses 9 to 10, verses 27 to 28, and verse 35. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Listen to what God says. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot. That doesn't sound good. That my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. I'm going to wipe them out. You might think, that's too much. That's justly deserved. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side. Each of you will come back and look at this in more detail. And go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Verse 28, And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Verse 35, Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. We are so quick to downplay our sin. What this passage teaches us is that God takes our sin very seriously. Why? Why does God take our sin so seriously? Because He's holy. And He calls His people, His rescued people, to be what? Holy. You know, according to 1 Corinthians 8, this is interesting. According to 1 Corinthians 8, 23,000 people fell that day as a result of God's punishment. 23,000 in a single day because of Israel's idolatry. That's staggering. That's almost the size of Lufkin. What are we, like 35,000? Close to 40? Over half of Lufkin. The wages of sin is what? It's death. How can any of us downplay sin after reading this passage. More so, how can any of us downplay sin after considering the cross of Jesus Christ? You know, idolatry is typically not alone. The Bible teaches us that sin begets more sin. Sin results in more sin. Where do we see this in our passage? I'm going to try not to be indelicate here. I know there's young people. But I want you to listen to verse 6. And they rose up early the next day, and offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And they're offering those to the golden calf, by the way. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Now listen, if you have this image right now of Israel running around, laughing, playing hide-and-seek, and tag, that's not what's happening. It's not what this verb means. According to 1 Corinthians 8, they are engrossed in what? They're engaged in gross sexual sin. The verb used here in the Hebrew indicates drunken sexual sin. Now, what's significant? I thought about this yesterday. What's significant about the language in Exodus 32.6? You know, Paul uses similar language. What did they do? They ate and they drank and they played. What does Paul say we should do if there is no resurrection of Christ? We should eat and we should drink and we should be merry. Why is that significant? That's 1 Corinthians 15, 32, by the way. 
Paul is saying such behavior is only warranted if the claims of the Bible aren't true. But the claims of the Bible are true. Therefore, such sinful behavior is not warranted. Here's what we see in our passage. Israel was behaving in such a way that showed that they totally rejected the claims of God. They were living in this moment as if God didn't exist. The same God who had appeared to them in a pillar of cloud, in a pillar of fire. The same God who had parted the Red Sea for them. The same God who had overcome their enemies. The same God who had given them manna from heaven. The same God who had given them His Word. You know, Israel had lied. They lied. Remember Exodus 24? We have the the covenant ceremony. A lot of blood sacrifices, promises are made. What did Israel say after the law was read? They heard it. Listen. Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came and he told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people, I don't think this is hyperbole, all the people answered with one voice in unison and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Did they do it? Israel had broken their covenant with the Lord. And it symbolized, in a pretty dramatic way, what happens when Moses comes down from the mountain. Verse 19, And as soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. Just like who? Just like the Lord. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain, symbolizing the covenant being broken. Not only is a multitude wiped out, 23,000, right? But this is funny. And when I say funny, it's strange. Israel is made to consume their idols. Did you know that? What does Moses do? Listen in verse 20. He took the calf. I mean, Moses is going off, right? Listen to what Moses does. Moses took the calf that they made, and he burned it with fire, and he ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water, and he made the people of Israel do what? They had to drink it. That's nasty. That's nasty. I've drank some, is that right, drinking? Drunken? Drunk? You know, I'd say things like that in Washington, and I would just blame it on being from East Texas. So you guys can understand when I say drunken, drinking. When I lived in Africa, I drank the water, and I got sick a lot, and it was filtered. I just, man, but I came back with like an iron tummy. True story. What can we learn from this? They're made to drink their idols. It communicated two things. How many? Two things. One, it tasted terrible and didn't satisfy. That's obvious. Tasted terrible, didn't satisfy, and two, again, I'm not trying to be indelicate here, but it was expelled as excrement, as feces, which is of absolutely no use. Here's the point. Our idols cannot satisfy, and they are ultimately waste. They're garbage. They're of no use. Israel's problem was monumental. Therefore, they needed what? A monumental solution. And it's the same with all of us here. And that brings us to point number three. Our idolatry, we've established, we're all idolaters by nature. 
Our idolatry deserves what? God's wrath is punishment. Number three, our idolatry reveals our need for an intervention. Moses intervenes on behalf of Israel, and he does so twice. There's two examples where Moses intervenes on behalf of God's people. This is sweet. This is sweet. Exodus 32, listen, 11 to 14. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt? He got it right. Who brought him out? Moses isn't saying, I did it. He's saying, you did it. Lord, you're the one that rescued your people with great power and with a mighty hand. Why? And this is so good. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants. to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Wow. What is at the heart of Moses' first intervention? His concern is what? It's God's glory. His concern is God's glory, his reputation before the nations. I've spent a lot of time talking about this. Everything God does, he does for his glory. He does so that the nations will know. Moses highlights God's rescue and God's promises. He appeals to God's mercy and grace. And the Lord what? He hears. So good, the Lord hears Moses prays, he calls out to God, and the Lord hears. He relents from the disaster that Israel justly deserved. Now, there's still punishment, is true? There's still punishment, but God's people aren't wiped out. They're not wiped out. The Lord is compassionate. And then we have the second example, which is so helpful in pointing to Christ. Exodus 32, 30-32. Listen, here's the the second instance of Moses intervening on behalf of God's people. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. So Moses returned to the Lord and listen. He said, this is what Moses said to God. Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. Moses, do you hear what Moses is doing? He's placing himself on the chopping block. He's willing to be a substitute in their place. And yet, it doesn't work. Moses' life is not enough. Why? Why is it not enough? Why? Because Israel needs a perfectly sinless substitute. More than that, they need a divine substitute. Israel needed a savior a substitute, and so do who? We. We do. And that brings us to number four. God's intervention, in spite of our idolatry, reveals His what? His amazing grace. Amen? Oh, man! There is some really good stuff in chapter 32. God's intervention, in spite of our idolatry, reveals His amazing grace. Exodus 32, verse 14 and 34. Listen, verse 14 and 34. 
1, 4, 3, 4. And the Lord relented from the disaster that He had spoken of bringing on His people. Verse 34. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Israel, listen, Israel doesn't get what they deserved. They experienced God's wrath, yes, but on a much smaller scale than what they justly deserved. Once we understand the gravity of Israel's sin, they're sinning in a big way. They sinned a great sin. We should look on with awe and amazement at God's response. Wow, God, you relented from your disaster. They spurned your goodness, your generosity. They rejected the Creator for creation, and yet you didn't wipe them out. You relented from your disaster. You still said you would go before them and lead them. Oh, what amazing grace. What mercy. What compassion. Israel turned its back on God, the one who had done so much for them. And yet they live on. And the Lord promises to go before them. Amazing. Here's our final point. How should we respond to such amazing grace? And this is tough. This is a tough passage, by the way. Number five. How should we respond to such amazing grace? Number five. The Lord deserves our utmost allegiance. The Lord deserves our utmost allegiance. All right, this is the tough passage. Verses 25 to 29. And when Moses saw... Excuse me, sorry, I was loud. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro, from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did. That's important. They did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained <clears throat> excuse me, for the service of the Lord each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he, the Lord, might bestow a blessing on you this day. It's heavy. It's a heavy passage. These are difficult verses to be sure. What are we to make of them? Again, the point is this. The Lord deserves our utmost allegiance. The main verse in, verse, in this section This final section we're going to look at is verse 26. And it's the question posed. And the way the ESV reads is, who is on the Lord's side? This question was meant to reveal allegiances. But the Hebrew literally reads, who is for Yahweh? That's the Hebrew. Who is for Yahweh? Now, the sons of Levi, which was Moses' own tribe, gathered around Moses. They were declaring their allegiance to who? Again, Moses asked the question. It'd be like me saying, or Pastor Aaron saying, hey, who is for the Lord? Who is for Yahweh? And I hope everyone say, yes, all of us. In the midst of gross sexual immorality, idolatry, Moses asked the question, who 
is for Yahweh. And the sons of Levi gather around Moses. Again, they were declaring their allegiance to the Lord. An allegiance that would be proven moments later. Okay, because again, this could be lip service, right? Come on. But they prove it moments later. How so? They were authorized and commanded by God, this is hard, to serve as his instruments of judgment against their very own people, their family. And how did they respond? Lord, that's too much. Moses, I take it back. I recant. I'm not for the Lord. No. What does the text say? They did it. They obeyed. Their obedience, now get this, their obedience demonstrated that their ties to the Lord were stronger than family ties. They were tasked with wiping out those who refused to abandon their idolatry. Again, what will idolatry do? It will lead to death. This was God's grace. This was to help prevent the further spread of death. It was those who said, I don't care. I'm not for the Lord. I'm going to continue to revel and enjoy my sin. And God said, okay. Okay, but there's going to be a consequence. And what was it? The wages of sin is what? Should we take sin seriously? Yes. Walt Kaiser notes, following God then, as now, sometimes requires denying one's family and being cut off from them. Do you remember what Jesus said? This is Luke 12, 51-53. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two, and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying whenever the gospel enters a home, what's going to happen? You're going to have some say, I'm in. Yes. You're going to have others say, no, I'm not. And that's going to cause what? Inevitably division. I had a student in Africa when I taught there. His name was Stephen. I've shared this story before. Stephen came from a strong Muslim family. When he was a young teenager, he heard the gospel in his village. You know what he said to mom and dad? I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Ooh. Stephen told me after class, he goes, Chris, I'll stop doing the accent. (laughs) Brother Chris, he said, Chris, when I went home and told my mama and papa that I've become a Christian, my dad said, listen, this is true. You're dead to me. And if I ever see you again, I will kill you. And Stephen could have said, whoa, 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 dad, I was just kidding. I was being foolish. I'm young. Come on, give me some slack here. But he didn't. He said, no, dad, my allegiance is to Jesus. And he left home never to return. And you know what he was doing at Cameroon Baptist Theological Seminary? He was trained to be a pastor so he could go back to that village and plant churches. (laughs) Wow. You think Stephen's allegiance was to the Lord? I think so. You know, their obedience, the sons of Levi, led to the Lord's blessing. They would be used to the Lord, right? They would be used to the Lord. The Lord will bless our obedience. This is not health, wealth, prosperity gospel, by the way. This is what I mean. Those who put the Lord first, those who put the Lord first, no matter what, will be the ones to enjoy His kingdom forever. Amen? Don't waver. Because the Lord's worth it. Don't waver because the Lord's worth it. Now let's end with this. How does Exodus 32 point to Jesus? Oh, there's so much here. 
we are idolaters, all of us. We're born with a desire to replace God. We naturally look to anything else or anyone else to fulfill and satisfy our hearts. Because of that, we need what? We need divine intervention. We need one to make us right with God. We need one to change our hearts. We need Jesus. Amen? We do. And if you don't see that from this text, Lord, open your eyes. Jesus is the only one who can remedy our idolatrous hearts. Only Jesus can save us. Three things here, how this passage points to Christ. Number one, Jesus is the greater Moses who intervenes on behalf of his people. Now, let me give you a lesson in theology here. Jesus, the Son, God the Father, and God the Spirit, they're not reacting. They don't do that. God doesn't react. Oh, wow, creation didn't work out the way I hoped, so I better send my Son. No, that's a lie. God planned the life, death, and resurrection of His Son before the foundation of the world. This was God's plan for an idolatrous people, for His glory and our good. Amen? Jesus is the greater Moses who intervenes on behalf of His people. I love John 17 where Jesus prays not only for His disciples, but for the future church. Isn't that so cool? Do you know what Jesus is doing right now for His people? He's praying for us. He's interceding for us. He's representing us before the Father, pleading our case. Number two, Jesus makes atonement for us through the sacrifice of his own life in our place. Jesus wasn't simply willing to give his life, he gave it. Now, let me share an illustration that I heard in seminary from one of my professors. He said, imagine a fireman going into a building on fire. There's a child inside screaming for help. As soon as that fireman crosses the threshold, as soon as he walks through the doorway, he is what? He's risking his life. Does that mean he's going to die? There's a good chance he might not die. There's a good chance he might make it out alive with the little girl. There's hope, right? They've trained. He's risking his life. And we would say that is honorable, right? All of us, that's an honorable thing to do, to risk one's life for someone else. But here's the second scenario. The fireman's inside the building. He finds a little girl. He's leading her out, but before he does, he sees a beam, a 2,000-pound beam falling from the ceiling, and he has a split decision, right? i got to make a decision. If I duck out of the way, I save myself, but the little girl dies. If I push her out of the way, I'm putting myself in front of this burning beam, 2,000 pounds, which will mean my death. What does he do? He pushes the little girl out of the way takes the beam in her place. He wasn't just willing to give his life, he gave it. Which one's more honorable? Being willing to give one's life or actually doing it? It's the second, it's the latter, right? Jesus wasn't simply willing to give his life. Moses was willing to put himself on the chopping block. Yes, Moses! Wouldn't work because he's not a perfectly sinless substitute. But Jesus wasn't just willing, he gave it. Amen? He gave his life for sinners like you and me. Number three, Jesus gives us the Spirit to overcome idolatry. Amen? He gives us the Spirit to overcome idolatry. Jesus empowers us to smash our idols and to put them in their proper place. You know, I meant to say this last week. I'm going to say it now. Exodus 31, 1-11, we have this guy named Bezalel. 
And Bezalel is filled with the Spirit so that he can construct the tabernacle and all its furnishings. Do you know what tribe he was from? The tribe of Judah. Filled with the Spirit to do the Lord's work for the good of God's people and the glory of God. Do you know who else came from the tribe of Judah? Full of the Spirit. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a, a ransom for many. Oh, so you could just put that in there. Jesus is the greater Bezalel. <laughs> what about application? This is rapid fire. How do we apply this passage? Let me give you several practice steps. Number one, go have some interventions. Okay? Go have some interventions. Pray for the lost and ask this question, who are you for? Are you for the Lord? Call unbelievers to give their allegiance to the one true God revealed in Jesus Christ. And call believers. Call believers to repent of their sin and to go after Jesus. I remember my best friend growing up, my first Christian friend, Michael Voss, who's now a pastor, thank God. He fell into sexual sin in college. At the end of high school, into his first year of college. And I pleaded, and I begged, and I brought the gospel for him. And I intervened, and brothers of mine intervened. And by God's grace, he turned from sin, and he pursued Jesus Go have some interventions. Number two, pray for the lost. Pray for the lost. Prayer is the greatest privilege of the follower of Jesus, and yet I think it is the most neglected. What do we learn about prayer, namely how we should pray in our passage? Look at Moses' example. Three things stand out here. When we pray, like Moses, we should appeal to, number one, if you're taking notes, God's power. Appeal to God's power. Moses appeals to God's great power in verse 11. When you pray, appeal to God's glory. Moses appeals to God's glory. His reputation before the nations in verse 12. So when you pray, appeal to God's power and appeal to God's glory. And number three, when you pray, appeal to God's promises. Moses, when he prays, appeals to God's promises and his faithfulness to keep his promises. That's verse 13. Number three. Because sin kills, we must be at work doing what? Killing sin. What did John Owen say? Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Learn from Israel's errors. Rather than looking to the Lord, they looked to their own circumstances and man-made solutions. Always look to the Lord in His Word. If you want to kill sin, you got to be in what? Psalm 119, verse 11, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Number four, repent of your idols. What did Calvin say? The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Repent of your idols. Remember, an idol is anything we put before the Lord Jesus Christ. It could be money. It could be sex. It could be your career. It could be another relationship. As Tim Keller famously said years ago, this is a helpful quote. It stuck with me. Keller said, an idol is often a good thing that we make an ultimate thing. Pray Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me and know me, O God. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Pray for the Lord to reveal and expose your idols. And when He does, do what? Repent of them. Number five, look to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Look to the Savior alone who can atone for our sins. Look to Jesus. Who alone can atone for our sins? Again, Moses says, maybe I can atone. Maybe, maybe I can go and make atonement for God's people. But he couldn't, right? He can't. 
Who alone can atone for our sins? You know, the, the animal sacrifices had to be repeated every year. It wasn't a final once and for all solution. Who is the once and for all sacrifice? Who made atonement for us? Jesus. So look to Jesus. If you've not looked to Jesus, look to Jesus. Ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to be your King. And number six, give the Lord your undivided allegiance. Put Jesus first. And this will be seen in your obedience. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Give him your allegiance because he's worthy. Amen? He's worthy. Let's pray. Father, we confess as a church that our hearts are perpetual idol factories. Reveal, expose our idols. Holy Spirit, do that through the word of God. Do it through trusted brothers and sisters. And once those things are exposed, those things that are competing for our affections, give us the grace and the strength and the wisdom to repent, to put those things in their proper places, and to always put you first. Father, I pray that Kelty's First Baptist Church will be known as a church that gives its undivided allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus, you're worthy. We thank you for your word. Help us to hide it in our hearts. Holy Spirit, take what we've heard Apply it to our hearts to make us more like Jesus for his glory and our good. And all God's people said, in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Amen.